Hello and welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan, and we are back. It's been a minute since our last episode, and I do want to address that right off the bat and say, first of all, I am very sorry for the delay. We talk a little bit more about the reasons for our absence in today's episode. Basically, it was a combination of some equipment problems where we lost our last recording. And on top of that, just me being sick and going through a very busy period in my day job. Um, it's nothing more nefarious than that. Just a combination of unfortunate factors over the past month. But we are back and I am very happy to talk some magic with all of you. Many listeners reached out to me during the last couple of weeks just to check in um, to make sure the show is doing okay and to let us know that we are missed. We miss you too. Really, those messages mean so much to me. So thank you, thank you to everyone who reached out, who was thinking about us. I'm always incredibly grateful that all of you who are listening choose to spend some of your time each week brewing and hanging out with us. We even had some new patrons who signed up during our hiatus, doing what they can to support the show. Shoe Paste, Bogkin Van Horn, a few others who I'll shout out a bit later. I see you, and I appreciate your support so much. It is an honor to once again talk some magic with you. I also got a message last week from one of our listeners on a very different topic, and I want to speak on that also. And this part is not magic related. This is about current events, and it's something that is very important to me, so please bear with me for a moment. I promise we do have two hours of magic talk coming. We're brewing with Spiteful Hexmage and Agatha's Soul Cauldron, and David has a wild new list that he trophied with. That's all coming up, but I do just need to take a few minutes at the top to talk about this first. So, a message came in from a longtime listener and a friend of the show. They said, Cave Dan, as someone who was just living in Israel very recently, now I was there for four months last fall, that's the context, the current events must be pretty shocking for you. And this was a couple of days after the terrorist attack on October 7th. I had to take a minute to think about this, because I was in Jerusalem, I podcasted from there, we released many episodes from there but I didn't really speak on the situation in Israel-Palestine in very much detail. I left a lot of things ambiguous, and I'd like to remedy that now. I did write a reply, and we've had a healthy discussion going in the Faithless Brewing Discord. I want to take a couple of minutes here just to share some of my thoughts, because the situation demands it, and I do not want there to be any ambiguity about how I'm processing these events. So I'm going to go through the message that I wrote, which is now about a week out of date, so I'll be updating it as I go. So are the current events in Israel-Palestine shocking for me? No. Uh, shock is not the right word for it. I feel a tremendous anger. I feel a slow-boiling frustration that compounds day by day as the Israeli military response in Gaza unfolds. I'm extremely grateful that I was able to spend last fall in East Jerusalem, which for those who are unaware is the Palestinian half of the city. It's been under Israeli occupation since 1967. That's more than 50 years. I was able to visit so many amazing places in the West Bank and throughout Israel. 
The Palestinians I met and most of the Israelis were wonderful people, beautiful, kind, intelligent, welcoming. There was also an undeniable cruelty and injustice towards Palestinians baked into every layer of Israeli society. I'd hoped going in that it would just be a small undercurrent. You know, every country has ultranationalists. Israel has ultra-Zionists and the religious right. But unfortunately, it wasn't an undercurrent. It was very much out in the open. Last fall is when Israel's current government, which is ultra-right and fascist, came into power. And this happened right as I was leaving, around the end of December. And the people on the street, as well as Israeli news media, were quite clear-eyed that the situation in the West Bank, which was already dire, was about to get much, much worse. Now, if you follow me on Twitter, or X, you may have seen over the past year my occasional retweets about the deteriorating conditions in Palestine, as Israeli settlers ramp up their policies of intimidation, of murder, of violent pogroms against Palestinian villages, now with the full support of ministers in the far-right government. You can look up the names Ben Gvir and Smotrich to see what I'm talking about. Who openly declare their intentions of ethnic cleansing and annexation. It is frustrating and it's heartbreaking because these are not new policies. They're just stating them openly now and acting with complete impunity. The reality has long been that American politicians and news media on both sides of the aisle ignore the suffering of Palestinians under a brutal military occupation, and not only ignore it, but actively clamor to declare their unwavering support for Israel. I want to be clear. Israel's military, technological, and economic might is utterly dominant in the region, and they've used that power to impose apartheid conditions on Palestinians, knowing that they have full support and cover from the United States. And this was already the case for decades, even before the current far-right government began to escalate their aggressions last year. So I was aware of all this in a very general way. I've been fortunate that I was born in a rich country. I've had a good education. I've studied Arabic. I've studied Hebrew. I've lived and traveled in the Middle East. But these four months in Jerusalem made the occupation feel much more immediate and real for me. It put many human faces and lives onto a situation which I previously had the luxury to ignore. And I still have that luxury. I could just walk away. I could turn off the microphone. I could delete this recording. But I'm not going to, because this needs to be said. There is no military solution to the conflict. Once again, there is no military solution to the conflict. The only solution is to end the occupation. I say this fully aware that I have not yet commented on the utterly brutal and inhumane crimes that Hamas perpetrated against innocent civilians on October 7th. I know that I'm supposed to start with a condemnation, so let me get to that now. The Hamas attackers are murderers. They should absolutely be brought to justice. But what Israel is doing in Gaza is not justice. It never was before this terror attack and it's only getting exponentially worse day by day. I wrote this a week ago. It's even more true now. I urge you, if you're still listening, to please pay attention to what Israel is doing in their military response. 
6,000 bombs dropped on Gaza in the first six days. Entire neighborhoods razed. High-rise apartments leveled. Mosques flattened. Hospitals destroyed. A complete blockade of food, water, and electricity for 11 days to a population of 2 million people. Half of them are children. They're trapped in a fenced-in area the size of Chicago. And they've never been allowed to leave. Think about that. The people of Gaza have never known freedom. The children of Gaza have never known freedom. 10% of that population, 200,000 people, was displaced in the first 48 hours as their homes were reduced to rubble in carpet bombing. Today, one week later, that number is more than a million people. Israel told the civilians of Gaza to flee to the south, but the bombs are still falling in the south. Gaza's only power plant ran out of fuel a week ago. There is no electricity. There is no water. The death toll from Hamas's terror attack was shocking, and the death toll from Israel's overwhelming response has surged past that number at an astonishing and very deliberate pace. This is not hidden information. Netanyahu himself tweets out video footage of utter destruction from aerial bombing and promises that this is only the beginning. This is not justice. These are war crimes. This is not justice. I would like to grieve for the victims in Israel. They were innocent. The atrocities committed against them by the Hamas terrorists are unspeakable. But I also feel a bubbling anger that makes it very hard for me to hold these feelings in tandem. The complete and utter devaluing of Palestinian lives has gone unchecked and unacknowledged for decades. So I am sickened, but I'm not surprised, to see the response in the American government and media. They do what they've always done. They turn a blind eye to Israel's war crimes, even when they're happening right before our eyes. Today, October 18th, President Biden went to Israel to promise more support, more money, more bombs. Today, October 18th, the United States used their veto at the United Nations Security Council to block an international resolution calling for ceasefire and de-escalation. Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary for President Biden, has said that calls for de-escalation and ceasefire are repugnant and disgraceful. 53 times the United States has used their veto power at the United Nations to block international condemnations of Israel's war crimes and human rights abuses. This is wrong. When the entire world thinks that you're wrong, maybe it's time to start asking if we're actually the bad guys here. Supporting Israel's collective punishment of the people of Gaza, and not just standing by, but directly financing it and sending American warships and bombs, is a moral stain on our country. We need to reverse course. We cannot look away. So what can I say? What's the point of all this? I want to see peace, and I want to see justice in Israel-Palestine, which includes the Hamas terrorists brought to justice for their crimes. But what's happening in Gaza today is not justice. It's not security. And it is definitely not the war that the newspaper headlines make it out to be. Now, everything I've just said, it shouldn't even need to be said. 
this should not be controversial. Calling for ceasefire and de-escalation should not be a radical opinion. But we've done an exceptionally poor job in American media and politics of understanding the history of the conflict. We've done a terrible job placing value on the lives of Palestinians. We get swept up in symptoms and we ignore root causes. And now we find ourselves profoundly on the wrong side of a massive humanitarian disaster. A genocide that's unfolding before our eyes, on our watch, with our complicity, and with our tax dollars. The only solution is to end the occupation. And until there is justice, there will be no peace. All right, that's all I will say about this for now. If you're still here, thank you for hearing me out. I promise we can talk about magic now, but if anyone does want to discuss this further, you can find me in the Faithless Brewing Discord. I welcome your feedback, and I thank you, all of you, for helping to keep me sane in these very dark days. Okay, enough politics. You've been very patient. So let's roll the theme music and get on to the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, joining you on a crisp fall day here in Minnesota. And with me today is the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Cave Dan Online. He's Dr. Daniel Shriver. Dan, what is going on, my friend? Hello, hello, David. It is also a crisp day down in Austin, Texas. The first one since I moved to this godforsaken state. And... <laughs> After a summer of like 105, 110, like it actually got cold last night, so cold that I got sick. So if I sound a little bit like death, that that is why. I'm actually very happy about this. <laughs> like, oh my well, God, getting, getting cold does not make you sick, right? That's that's a myth. Mm, Catching I cold disagree. because it's chilly outside is 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 absolutely not 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 a thing that happens. So I come from a mixed family, but on my Chinese side, my mother is an acupuncturist, and she's wise in the ways of Eastern medicine. She's always taught me that wind and cold invasion is when the sickness comes into your body, right? It's very common if like, you're out for a run, and you're sweating, and then you stop, and then that's when your pores are open, and that's when the wind and the cold invade your body, and it just comes for your chi, everything's off balance then, next thing you know. You got like COVID 3.0 or something. You're very, very <laughs> sick. <laughs> I think it's real, personally. Okay, well, <laughs> we are in the middle of a uh, religious war in the Middle East, so you are free to have whatever crazy belief you want without uh, any modicum of proof. That's fine. We hope you feel better, however, whatever process that entails. Is it rehydrating yourself? Is it, you know, injecting shark piss into your eye and drinking a, a can of cola while being upside down. We don't know. We don't know how that works. <laughs> exactly. Also want to say that uh, it has been a minute since our last episode, and I do have to issue a formal apology for that. So 
What happened, David? What happened? Uh, you'll you'll have to tell me. <laughs> we recorded a podcast. We were having some problems with your microphone. We switched out of Squadcast because we thought that was maybe the problem. And at least on our conversation in our Gchat video, it seemed like the microphone problem went away. But apparently, so Dan edits our episodes for people who aren't aware because he is the CEO. Uh, and I guess when you went and looked at the the video or the, excuse me the audio, it the the glitching, repeating, echoing sound had actually shown up on Squadcast. So we're a very professional operation, as you know, right? Only the highest standards, and that means course, you never yes. you never record with just one audio track, right? You have your online call, and then you have a backup. We use a local file to like get the crisp, clean sound. Squadcast is like essentially Zoom, giving us some trouble last time. So I uttered the fateful words of, let's just, let's just not use Squadcast. The local recording has never failed us before, right? The local's fine. It has nothing to do with whatever connection problems we were having on my side. <laughs> so we had this beautiful show, perhaps our best show in all the years we've been doing this. Two hours plus of just all about Agatha's Soul Cauldron, all about Up the Beanstalk, it was witty, it was erudite, it's just like the banter was flowing. I felt like I was really on, I was really in my element. It went really long, I definitely agree with that, it was over <laughs> two hours. <laughs> and then I, I went to actually put it together and somehow my entire track was all like... <laughs> which was interesting, it was an interesting listening experience, because David is his usual uh, crisp and clear self. So I honestly don't know what to do, like I've started to re-record my side um it was quite challenging Ooh, a little like fleetwood mackie and overdub there i like that yeah this is like you know i sold the rights to the original episode but this is cave dan's version like taylor's version <laughs> um so sort of a famous si sidetrack here when michael jackson was recording beat it they lost what they call their ghost tracks their original tracks of the drums and everything so they had to take the guitar tracks that um, Eddie Van Halen laid down because he redid the song and then they had to reconstruct their rhythm section which you basically never do Oh wow! Uh, so they have these like studio pros the guys who uh, ended up who um, are in uh, Toto <laughs> or like uh, I don't know if people know this but the reason that Toto won all those Grammys even though their record wasn't very good is because all these guys were all these like super seasoned uh, studio pros and they recreated just by ear and then they just played along to the track which you Basically never, never happens. So. Okay. So we got options is what I'm hearing. Cause what I've tried so far has not worked. Um, I haven't totally given up on it yet. That's why we didn't just like re-record the Agatha episode. I started just like trying to hear what I was saying slash guess what I would have said at the time <laughs> and like try to add emotion to it. I'm like a really bad script actor cast as myself. Um, I don't know. Like I heard they did this for, that movie her where they just like had Scarlett Johansson just re re-record the entire AI voice. Cause the first actor wasn't sexy enough or something. So maybe that's what we got to do. We just got to get someone in to like be me. Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> that's one option. Yes. Dude. Shout outs to her, by the way, that movie was awesome. It was incredibly mm -hmm. prescient. We, we need to shout out her. Yeah, absolutely. So if we get a few more patrons, I can reach out to Scarlett. Um, see if she'll, yeah. <laughs> she'll come in she might be available well we don't need we don't need to use her face we just need her voice so that's got to be a little cheaper <laughs> oh my gosh 
Yeah. So another option, David, you had the interesting idea of what if we just release what we have, which would just be your voice. <laughs> just me talking to a person that I'm going to insist was real <laughs> in my mind. One man brewing. That will be the name of the episode. That could be kind of interesting, actually. I don't know. I'd have to listen to the first 10 minutes. It, it might just sound like insane. I actually like the idea of you sort of like Lindsey Buckingham style, just going over and like painstakingly like recreating your. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is an interesting point. Well, I think. And then because you have to like also shape your phrase to because mm-hmm. you're asking me a question that I have, that I'm <laughs> answering. Yeah, I mean. That's what I have been doing. I have not finished yet because it's extremely tedious and I have not had much time lately. This is the kind of thing that AI could almost do, right? It would take your distorted, garbled, echoey vocals and it would recreate, you know, a facsimile of your voice um, asking these questions or responding in such and such a way. Okay. I like that. So let's let the listeners decide. You let us know what we should do. Do you want to hear just David talking? which I think would be quite interesting. We'll release that um, if that's what the people decide. Yeah. If you want us to hire Scarlet or um, a knockoff Scarlet, someone to uh, fill in for me, or if we can do what David is describing, where I'll try to come up with plausible responses to uh, his witty observations. You should do it like in the crazy bad uh, ad lib style, you know, like um, in Wayne's World 2. They have a guy basically doing um, a Van Cleef impression. It's like, oh, what, what are you going to do now? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like a bad fake, uh, you know, like martial arts overdub or whatever. I, I don't think that. I would brew in that way. <laughs> what car are you describing? <laughs> oh, it could actually be like dubbed over the garbled stuff. Like a, like a proper. Yeah. So you just blank out the garbled stuff, but instead of replacing it with like a quote unquote naturalistic yeah, yeah. Dan Trever, you, you go, it's a hyper stylized. Um, yes, yes. That reminds me of a show I saw once, um, down at the Bryant Lake Bowl. It was called Kung Fu Hamlet, where it was Hamlet, but in the style of like a martial arts film where all of the actors pretended to speak. And then they're like three guys did the dub on the side. just like, uh, pretending to dub over the lines. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awesome. It was actually an amazing show. Yeah. I've had a... A lot of good times at Bryant Lake Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On to this week's show. So, yeah, we're just going to proceed as if the lost episode will eventually come out. So we're not going to rehash everything we talked about there. We did talk about Up the Beanstalk. We talked in great detail about Agatha. We talked about uh, Davis testing results with Besiege the Mirror. Uh, and we even talked about the new previews from Lost Caverns of Ixalan. However... We missed one. We missed one because it came out like an hour after we recorded. And that is Kellen, the Daring Traveler. So David, tell us about Kellen, the Daring Traveler. Kellen, the Daring Traveler. Uh, let me pull it up. Kellen is one in white for a legendary creature, human fairy scout. So human and fairy, both very relevant uh, types. Um, two, three. When Kellen Daring Traveler attacks, reveal the top card of your library. If it's a creature card with mana value three or less, put it into your hand. Otherwise, you may put it into your graveyard. In addition, it is a adventure. 
So the adventure half is green sorcery adventure, create X map tokens, where X is one plus the number of opponents who control an artifact. We don't know what a map token is yet. I strongly believe that the map token will sacrifice to explore, which is both a mechanic from the last Ixalan set. It also gives you information about the top of your deck, which is um, you know relevant to uh, Kellen's normal ability here. Um, so I, 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 that's what I believe this will be. I also love that it kind of is an ability that's more powerful in Commander without being ridiculous in normal uh, magic. So it's, it's, it's a way to kind of, and obviously this is a legend. So if you're playing against a bunch of mana rocks, this gives you way more maps. And if you're just playing a normal magic, uh, maybe it makes one map. And it's, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm strongly believing it will sacrifice to explore. I don't know if it'll be one or two mana though. And remind us what explore does. You look at the top of your library. If it's a land, you may put it into your hand, or I think you must put it in your hand. And if it's mm -hmm. any other card... You can put a plus one, plus one counter on Kellen or on the creature that's exploring, and then you can put it in your graveyard or leave it on top of your deck. Hmm. Or is it bottom of your library? <laughs> so few cards have this ability of it. It was a really cool standard. That was kind of before they really power crept standard was they had the a lot of cards with Explorer. I'm just like looking up. On Scryfall, I'm like, like trying to think of any card with Explorer so I can look this up, but I cannot think of one. Seeker Squire, there's one. Yeah, there you go. One, two. Okay. Then put the card back or put it into your graveyard. You're correct. Okay. Oh, right. Graveyard. Yeah. So it moves a card into your graveyard, so Dan loves this ability. <laughs> it can draw a card, so Dan also loves this ability. Is this the favorite, your favorite white card ever printed in the last five sets? <laughs> All right, so rewinding for a second. Kellen, Daring Traveler, the Human Fairy Scout. I'm told that Kellen's a very important character in the new story arc, right? Kellen was in Wilds of Eldraine. Kellen's in Lost Caverns of Ixalan. Presumably traversing the Omen Paths, whatever that means, despite not being a Planeswalker and just visiting all these worlds. So maybe we're going to see a Kellen in every set. The clues, right? Like, how strong can a map possibly be? It's got to be pretty weak, right? Like, if you look at Kellen's base rate, ignoring the adventure side, that's extremely strong, isn't it? Well, not extremely, but, you know, one and a white for a 2-3 that whenever it attacks, reveals a card and potentially draws a card. If it's a creature, CMC 3 or less. And if not, you have the option to put it in your graveyard. So that sort of pseudo-creature explorer template. That alone... I'm trying to think of like what is the most comparable creature to that, but that alone would you wouldn't blink your eye at that being just a normal rare, would you? It kind of reminds me of the um, the two three. I don't know if it was in this last set. It's like one and a green for a two three, and when it attacks, and I think it has to do like combat damage. You get to surveil one and then return a land into play or something. Yeah the the new Venom Six that's a Merfolk. Is that the one? <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's something. a merfolk. It's a, it's a it's one and a green for a two three creature, and this is much stronger than that. I think. Um, now it is hard to manipulate the top of your deck in Pioneer, where this card kind of naturally sits. The cards you might be able to hit in Modern are much more powerful, though. Bowmaster is a card with mana value three or less. Um, basically, every creature in the uh, mono white. Hammer deck is a creature that's two or less. 
uh, a bunch of the combo decks, you know, that play Collected Company are full of creatures that cost three or less. Now, we don't typically play a lot of effects that put cards on top of our library, and I don't think you even need to do that. I think this card just by itself is if you have enough hits, right? If you just have 30 hits in your deck. Even if this hits Elf sometimes, it's just really good. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Deep Root Wayfinder, that's the card we were talking about. Yeah. We never did a Deep Root, Deep Root Wayfinder week. I think I was the only one who liked that card. <laughs> I mean, we liked it for Modern even, just because it kind of reminds you of Friend and Six. Being able to get back a fetch land every turn will be super powerful. I've only seen maybe one person actually try putting it into a deck. Um, turns out it's not a good idea. But <laughs> Triggers whenever you hit a battle, David. Do you remember yeah, that's important. before battles? It's hard to remember, honestly. It was definitely worth creating an entire new type, though. There's no question about that. Okay, so we think that the front side of Kellen is good enough like not an amazing card but strong my contention is that given that whatever a map is has got to suck right maps just got to be <laughs> if, if the adventure which is on curve produces multiple maps at once um it can't be good and that almost makes me feel like it can't just be tapped to explore it's got to be worse than that somehow like well it'll pay- it'll be multiple mana it'll either be a blood or, or a treasure or excuse me or a, a clue payment I see. Um, and then would it have a creature explorer or would it just like reveal the top card of your deck? Because I believe currently you can only explore with a creature. Oh, well, I'm sure it'll have a replicative effect without the plus one plus one ability, maybe. Um, but I mean, on curve, this is making a, you know, blood effect. <laughs> Uh, so it's it's like a worse um, Blood Tithe Harvester. Well, <laughs> sure. Um, other suggestions I've also, heard... Go ahead. For what a map does. For me, I think like tap, sack, and scry one. Like that seems the most likely thing to me. That's not world specific. It's clean and it's interacts with the top of the deck. Uh, it's the kind of thing that's forward compatible. And I don't think that would need to require an additional mana cost if it was just like tap, sack, scry. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess my thought is maps in general, expedition map being the most famous one, in general, find lands or have the capacity to find lands. Um, So that explore is a mechanic that does put lands into your hand. Um. It could be something that tutors up a basic land. That's another That's another thing I could imagine. Like two mana sack. Put a basic land into your hand. So actual classic map. Yeah, that's another yeah. guess that I've heard. But then, then you now have like a token that makes you shuffle, which seems like a bad idea. Um, have you heard any other theories that seem plausible? I mean... Their theories are a dime a dozen online, but I won't be repeating any of the other things that people think it might do. I, mm-hmm. I think the tap to scry, tap to explore, or whatever, it's some amount of mana sacrifice to explore, some amount of mana sacrifice to find a basic land. Those are the three that I would entertain. Okay. And so the strength of the ability is totally reliant also on how much mana it is. You know, we've seen these tokens get printed over and over again, right? We found that 
blood were more powerful than we thought. You know, um, the the two two zombie that dies at the end of combat were weaker. I mean, again, the, the mechanic itself is not weak. It's the cards that are printed on them. You could imagine a card that's very powerful with these abilities, but the way that they priced out the effects, um, you know, and and then the uh, making the artifact with X amount of tokens on it um, from the from the latest set has some relevance in standard, but has not basically been a thing in, in uh, modern or pioneer. So we got a question this week. It was about the phrase rectangle theory, which is something that uh, Lawson, when he's on, has brought up a few times. The question was, what the heck is rectangle theory? This is a prime example of rectangle theory. The phrase, I believe, comes from the Lords of Limited podcast. It refers to the observation that in recent years we're seeing more and more and more cards that come and produce game objects, what we would call the game objects and constructed, like food tokens, clues, treasures, blood, etc. Wicked rules, curse rules, anything like this, map tokens. And rectangle there is kind of just like a joke. Like it does, almost doesn't matter what the thing does. It's just uh, a shape, right? Almost with no text. What they observed is cards like that just tend to overperform. If you break down why that's the case, well, it's because the creature itself has to be answered. So you can't just leave Kellen alive. You got a point removal at Kellen, and when you've done that, well, the player is left with a map token. So they're just like pulling ahead. They just get all these extra resources. So that's rectangle theory. And you see that especially in a card like uh, Fable of the Mirror Breaker is perhaps the Hall of Fame rectangle theory card, where it's a saga that produces a token that makes more tokens. Once all that's dealt with, you still have to deal with the backside, which makes more tokens. So as far as what this means, like imagine if Kellen makes, with his adventure, makes one map or even two maps. You play Kellen then, it should probably be answered because it's going to generate more card advantage. And at that point, you're left with one or two extra maps. Is this just the way magic is going to be played from now on? Like, what does this mean for us? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a believer in in uh, rectangle theory uh, unless you leave it as broad as you chose to, which is that they will quote unquote overperform, where sure. we don't have to compare it to a baseline that we ever defined. Fair, fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, because the cards themselves, as we've noted, Magic is a very very old game, right? It's thirty years old this year. The cards are, you know, they are little rectangles. There's only so much text you can put on them. And there's only so many ways you can make a 4-4 trample creature, right? Uh, and, and you need to sell new cards every year, every quarter. So how do you find more places to put text so cards do slightly different things? You know, we know what the limited cards are going to look like. There's going to be a 3-mana 2-2 flyer that has the whatever random ability. There's going to be a 1-mana green card that finds a basic land and does the set theme, etc. So you need to keep finding places, the back of the card, uh, adventure. You need other places where you can put new text where you kind of reclassify things forever. It's sort of like rock and roll, right? We formalize the 12-tone scale. There's only so many major and minor and subdominant tones. So you make rock music and you make soul music or whatever. And now you have bands that combine two genres and now you have other bands that combine sets of two genres together, right? So Led Zeppelin combines mm. rock and blues, but now nobody plays just blues rock anymore. That'd be really weird and old, right? So you'd have someone else playing funk, and then you combine funk with Led Zeppelin, that'd be a new sound or whatever. So 
there's only so many ways when people are like, oh, you only have to learn a few chords to play a bunch of songs. Yes, one, four, five is like <laughs> a very unknown chord progression. And that's kind of what this is. We know there's going to be a four mana red rare or mythic rare in every set, right? And it's going to come into play and do something. It's going to have trample or first strike. You got to keep finding new places to put text to keep making people like us interested. They've had a stunning amount of new token types in the last year. So it's six new tokens in the last set alone. Now we get map tokens, a card within a card that makes another card. Yeah. Fair and then Kellen can find more cards. Correct. So, okay, what is, how are we ranking Kellen right now so we can determine if it overperforms or underperforms? I think Kellen's going to be the best card ever printed. So we'll see if it overperforms based on rectangle theory. I think so. I mean, it's exponential rectangles. In, in <laughs> I mean, if, if you have a multiple opponents and they all play Soul Ring on turn one, then Kellen makes like five map tokens. Correct. <laughs> Correct. I'm in for it. I'm in for it. I will also say we have seen over and over again the real key for adventure cards is on curve adventures where you can yes. play it naturally one mana, two mana, two mana, three mana with bone crusher. We saw that the white version, which is a two mana creature with some relevant text and a three mana spell see significantly less play because the way you get value out of it is much clunkier. Um, so that, I think that's very, very much worth noting. Right. And I do wonder if um, the fact that this is an off color adventure, that it's a green adventure on a white creature means that maybe maps are still strong. Like it's, you have to pay the cost in deck building to unlock that curve of turn one journey on turn two Kellen. So maybe it's not that maps suck. It's just that this is a reward you get for being specifically white green. And it's only rare. So true. All right. One last bit of magic news. Uh, today is October 10th and next week on October 16th, we have potentially a banned and restricted announcement. Potentially. What are we talking about? Well, they've switched to the yearly ban cadence going hand in hand with a three-year standard rotation. They really want to inspire confidence. How confident do you feel, David, in your, the quality of Magic's formats? Do you feel more confident? Yeah, I feel confidence. Good, good. It's working. <laughs> the yearly ban cadence is working. I was I woke up sometimes with anxiety, and I just remember yearly ban cadence, and I just go right back to sleep, and my heart rate drops, and I inhale and exhale smoothly. I'm quoting here from the yearly ban, which was in August. Quote, while our goal is to make changes only once a year to promote more confidence and stability in standard. Life is full of chaos, but standard will be stable. We've left ourselves a window. With each major set release, the next one is October 16th. Windows we plan to use sparingly. In the smaller window, we'll be more amenable to making changes to non-rotating formats. Hmm. Okay, so they are saying, yeah, if you are really convinced that something's happening in Pioneer or Modern or Legacy or whatever, maybe next week. So it's time for some predictions, David. What do you think? Yeah, I think no changes. I mean, they outlined their plans uh, for Modern when they unbanned Preordain. I think that was a cool unban. It sees some play. It definitely doesn't see no play. But it hasn't uh, changed the format nearly as much as the printing of the Beanstalk mm -hmm. and Agatha Soul Cauldron. Those both go into different decks, very synergy-oriented decks. Um, 
Soul Cauldron kind of competes directly against Bowmaster, so you kind of have these different engines uh, that 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 kind of have tension against each other. That's kind of interesting. Um, Bowmaster works well with Agatha's Soul Cauldron. The Ring versus the Beanstalk as a as your card engine of choice uh, in mono black or multicolor, etc. So uh, yeah, I think again, I'm not a modern player. I always preface that, but I, I think modern as I see it now, it seems to be in a very good place. I, I think the format has actually hasn't been this good in a while. Agreed. What about Pioneer? Um, yeah, I mean, the Beanstalk is not anywhere near as good as Pioneer, although people play it. Um, I, I can't imagine them banning a card. Again, the only card you really should be considering banning is Nykthos. Um, but I think that actually like destabilizes the format weirdly. I think it makes Red Black Sack like much better. Um, so for right now, I, I'd, I'd be stunned if there's any change. I mean, the the, the new one mana blue cantrip that's not preordained in um blue red has has and meant that blue red has been making a huge comeback mm-hmm. so the, there's like 30 or 40 decks in the deck list i just played against a bunch of uh different decks all my leagues have been really interesting lately except for the one where i played lotus field three times but that's just bad luck um yeah i i, I find it very hard to believe that there'd be a ban or or unban in, in pioneer yeah, I don't think anything has significantly changed since Wilds of Eldraine. I don't feel like they're close to unbanning anything else. You know, we've talked in the past about it would be nice to free Expressive Iteration, it would be nice to free Smuggler's Copter, but really interesting to see how Sleight of Hand has done that job in Pioneer for the blue decks. Yeah, definitely not a card we expected to see as much play as it has. We even have uh, Law 11 has had some sweet, crazy brews with the, with the card and, you know, salt eye shells and blue black shells. So um, I'd, I'd always like to see them experiment a little bit more with unbans in, in modern and pioneer. But right now, both formats, I think, are actually super healthy. So if you come from a more of a do no harm mentality, I think the easiest move is to ban is to ban and unban nothing. Agreed. All right. Um, enough chit chat. Let's get on to business uh, for our card of the week. Wait, no, that's not true. <laughs> a little more chit chat. <laughs> Before we dive into the card of the week, uh, we just got to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way to say that we have some new patrons we would like to welcome to the Faithless family. They are Sam C., Platty Kurtik, Eric E., and Justin C. I think it's Platy Platy Kurtik, a a play on Katie Couric, would be my guess. Platy Kurtik. Really? <laughs> I would love to know the backstory behind that. Yeah, Platy Kurtik, whoever you are, uh, please message us if this is a Katie Couric joke or if it's just you know has some cool story from your youth. So, but it's Katie Curtin. Mm. All right. <laughs> Maybe Platy Couric was already taken. <laughs> well, if you want to find the answers to that and many other questions, you can go to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. That's where you can sign up to become a member, gets you access to our wonderful Discord channel, where you can find such esteemed brewers as Sam C., Eric E., Justin C., Platy Kurtik, and many, many others. Um, also helps support the show. You can make a pledge at any tier you're comfortable with. Uh, it can be a dollar a week. And yeah, we would love to have you there. You get to vote on <laughs> what, what we should do with our last lost episode. 
Exactly, exactly. And you'll see David's bruise long before everyone else, because at this pace, you know, it's anyone's guess as to whether this episode will actually get released. But the bruise are here, the bruise are here in the extended show notes, which you will also get access to as a patron. All right, on to our card of the week. And this one is just an adorable little card. I think we fell in love with this as soon as it was previewed. Yeah, the Spiteful Hexmage. Speaking of, this also is a uh, cardboard theory, right? Rectangle theory, yes. Rectangle theory, sorry. So yeah, Spiteful Hexmage is a black mana for a 3-2 human warlock, but when it comes in, excuse me, when it enters the battlefield, create a curse roll token attached to target creature you control. So in theory, if you play it on turn one, the level one play is this is a one mana one one. That, ha- that has enchanted itself with a cursed roll. And I kind of love the story behind that, right? Like this, this hex mage is so spiteful that he's just going to curse himself. <laughs> like what happened there? Did you like break his wand? It- <laughs> well, it's like the, uh, to bite your nose, you. That's right. Cut off. You the, curse your nose to bite your whatever. I don't know what the phrase is. Cut off the Grandma nose Ellen to spite the face, something like that. Yeah, spite the face. Yeah, there it is. In the artwork, it's a, it's a gentleman holding up a frog that he seems to have cursed. So he seems to have cursed someone else. That's the other thing you can do with this. You can... Well, the, the flavor text suggests it's his dad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it says, who will never amount to anything now, father? <laughs> and it does kind of look like a classic, like, a Nepo baby. <laughs> 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 like a dude you'd expect to see out at the clubs, like in uh, Los Angeles. You know, his, like, shirt unbuttoned and... He's got like a really nice haircut. <laughs> Beautiful. He's stuff. probably read a lot of like the game about like pickup, you know, he's like negging women or whatever. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So spiteful hex me <laughs> on turn one, he will most likely curse himself and become a one, one carrying a cursed role. What is a cursed role? You may ask. Well, this is one of the six new roles from wilds of Eldraine. The curse of roll says enchanted creature has base power and toughness one one. So this is one of the, the drawback rolls. The other five rolls are generally speaking buffs, but the curse roll, I mean, that's so interesting. A game object, which we love, that allegedly is a drawback, but you can engineer situations where it's actually a benefit. And that's, I think, where there's a lot of fun brewing space, as we'll see when we get to Davis Decklis. Right, so it's almost like this little built-in challenge. What do I do with my cursed roll to turn that liability into an advantage? Do I feed the cursed roll to something else? It's an enchantment token, which are not the easiest card type. You can't deadly dispute that. There is the bargain mechanic from Wilds of Eldraine that comes with a built-in way to sacrifice these things. Alternately, um, what else can you do, David? Well, you could say... Uh, a curse roll is an enchantment, so maybe I'll just play something that triggers whenever an enchantment comes into play, or something that counts the number of auras on the battlefield. Then I'm getting a bonus out of my cursed roll. Uh, so anything that triggers on multiple permanents entering play. This is a one mana way to trigger celebration or whatever it is. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's the perfect card for all of the set's limited mechanics. You can also take a look at that phrase, base power one, one base power. I mean, that's such an interesting space to play in, right? So you could find a card that 
A, doesn't mind being a 1-1, right? Maybe it's already a 1-1. Then it's like you didn't lose anything from putting a curse rule on it. If you want to go really deep, you find something that's a 0-0. And then giving that the curse rule actually buffs the creature, right? So what will be an example of a card like that? Ornithopter, turn one Ornithopter. And despiteful Hexmage, you now have a cursed Ornithopter that's a 1-3 flyer. No, excuse me, that's a 1-1 one, one flyer. <laughs> um, plus a 3-2. Um. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a wide variety of cards, but lots of things that come into play with plus one, plus one counters. You know, the mm-hmm. um, various constructs do this. Stone Coil Serpents. Um, yeah, any of the modular creatures. And finally, there's this interesting little clause built into all the rules that a creature can only carry one rule at a time. Uh, it wouldn't make sense to have a Wicked and a Cursed Frog. So if you put a new rule onto a creature, all previous rules fall off. So that's another built-in way to get rid of the cursed rule and unlock the full potential of the Spiteful Hexmage. Yeah, so if you just, again, we're still on level one here. Turn one, Spiteful Hexmage. Turn two, second Spiteful Hexmage. Enchant the same Spiteful Hexmage. So now at least you get a 3-2 for one mana. We know that's above the curve, at least in Pioneer, not in Modern. Um, And then you've also triggered Revolt if you're a Fatal Push deck. You're already playing Black. So... Again, that's not like there's some crazy powerful opening. You've, you've played a 3-2 for one and a 1-1 one, one for one. Um, but those kinds of plays, you know, lead to very tempo positive outcomes where you're getting these very cheap creature. And if you're getting an advantage out of what it comes into play with, um, you're, you're starting to look at, at a series of plays that's very difficult to deal with. Yeah, that's a line I didn't really think about, but it does make sense, especially in Pioneer, that if you're playing a Forest by Flex Mage, you're most likely also playing Fatal Push. So you have that built-in revolt enabler. You'll often draw two spiteful hex mages in the same game. I was thinking more like let's replace the curse rule with a monstrous rule. Like turn yes. one. If you can. The problem is that most of those cards aren't very good, but yes, that is absolutely something that you should be looking into. Same with bargain. It turns out all the bargain cards are not very good. Mm. Um I just also want to throw out a few other cards. Hateful Eidolon. Uh, when a card dies, you draw cards for every enchantment that was on it. That's mm-hmm. kind of cool. Hateful Eidolon itself is an enchantment. Uh, Archon of Sun's Grace is a card that triggers when an enchantment comes into play. Um, Kodama of the West Tree triggers when you do combat damage to an opponent with a modified creature. You are just generating a modified creature <laughs> with your with your hexmate or with your spiteful hexmage. Tree of Perdition. It's a card I talked about last week in our lost episode. Uh, it actually doesn't mind becoming a one-one, um, so that's kind of a cool way to uh, hit your opponent to a singular point. You can probably find a way to win from there. Um, any mana elf deck, if you're looking for like maybe you just have a ton of one mana plays. If you're playing like a mana elf deck with, let's say, um, Lovestruck Beast, you just have all these one ones lying around. So this is. Not a turn one um, while in the coddle, but it becomes a, you know, a very tempo positive play. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are just cards to think about. Those, those are not cards I built decks around this time, but I just wanted to like kind of those are all like in my wheelhouse. I consider them uh, as, as places to start. Totally forgot about modified. So that's from Kamigawa, right? Neon Dynasty. Yes. Yeah. So interesting backward compatibility there. Obviously, um, Anything with Constellation, right? So the Archon of Sun's Grace. Uh, David, you've got a sweet 5-0 list with a Constellation card here that we'll get to in a second. Um, and yeah, just anything that 
plays with the power and toughness of creatures. That's a very interesting space. It's the kind of thing where one-off cards are capable of modifying a creature's power and toughness, but they're just like, they're usually not good enough to build around. Like they're too inefficient, like turn to frog type effects or that kind of thing. Or we've seen it with, uh, you know, dollhouse of horrors. What if you could take any card and make it a one, one, what would that mean? Um, so yeah, the hex mage, very exciting one mana sort of plausible on its own, a lot of versatility. I guess the question I have, David is how, how much does the one mana three, two have to matter for your game plan to be interested in this card? I actually think quite a bit. Uh, I thought quite a bit before I played a bunch of leagues. Obviously, with the delay here, I've gotten in a couple of leagues before we we are uh, discussing this, which is actually very relevant. Um, but yeah, the 3-2 th- the can't just be nothing. Uh, you don't want to play it in a deck where it's your only creature. And I do think you want to be at least semi-aggressive. Right, I agree. If the upside of doing all this work, of getting rid of the curse roll, is to unlock the one mana three two, like the deck has to actually want that. It's gotta most likely be a deck that's looking to spend a lot of mana early to double spell with this one black creature to add a lot of stuff to the board. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested. Uh, one last little rules tidbit is that you you do have a window before the curse roll lands if you want to like crew a vehicle or something. So I don't know if that's like a Reckoner Bankbuster or Heart of Kirin. Um, you can play your Spiteful Hexmage trigger on the stack. You can go ahead and crew with the 3-2 before the Hexmage has to curse itself. But yeah, I think most of those use cases I'm envisioning you are trying to attack. Yeah, and unfortunately there isn't a window for you to crew up the vehicle, then enchant it. So you Correct. still have to target a creature that was in play when Hexmage entered play, unfortunately. Yeah, that'd be so sick if it didn't work that way, because then the, the aura would just fall off at the end of the turn. But Yeah. All right, enough theory. On to some decks. As far as I know, the Spiteful Hexmage has not 5-0'd at all. <laughs> except, <laughs> except. Except. Well, I already 5-0'd. <laughs> First league with the card. <laughs> I brewed a deck around Spiteful Hexmage. So Dan pointed out a few things. One... We need to find a way to make this card uh, better. So this deck does it in multiple different ways. So first of all, we are playing Satessan Champion, which Dan pointed out. <laughs> yes, he's not expecting to see a 5-0 list with Satessan Champion. I checked this card has not 5-0 since March of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so since the Trump administration, we're playing for Satessan Champion. So every time Spikeful Hexmage enters play, if Satessan Champion is in play, we just straight up draw a card and, and buff our Satessan Champion. So Satessan Champion, turn four, plus Spiteful Hex Mage is five power, and we re- and we replaced ourselves with a card. And they still have to kill a Satessan Champion, which is threatening to take over the game. Two, the second thing we want to do is have a home for it that we don't mind wearing the um, the the counter, and that is Sylvan Carry added. Hmm. Sylvan carry added is hexproof, so it keeps it on there forever. In lots of matches, you don't need Sylvan carry added to block, or maybe you want it to block and trade. Right, being a one-one is not the end of the world, um, but it is a safe place to to hold your counter if you if you need to buff up your uh, spiteful hex mages. And like I said, repeatable hex mages can all just enchant over and over again the same Sylvan carry added. Three, we are playing Lord Skitter's Blessing, so I think people. This isn't uh, breaking anyone's mind here, but 
turn one spiteful hexmage, turn two Lord Scare's Blessing, override the weakening, weakening counter for, from the hexmage with the plus counter from Lord Scare's Blessing. That makes our hexmage a 4-3, and if they don't kill it, let's say we're playing Lotus Field, we actually now have a Phyrexian Arena in play, so that means we draw an extra card every turn and take a damage. And let's uh, let's read that card for a second. Lord Skitter's Blessing, one and a black enchantment. When it enters a battlefield, create a Wicked Roll token attached to a target creature you control. The Wicked Roll says enchanted creature gets plus one, plus one. And when this aura is put into a graveyard, each opponent loses one life, and that would replace the Cursed Roll, like David's saying. Then on top of that, at the beginning of your draw step, if you control an enchanted creature, you lose one life and you draw an additional card. So very important draw step, not upkeep. Multiple times I abrupt decayed a enchantment, like a, like a portable hole that had targeted my Lord Skitter's Blessing. Uh, and so I was able to draw during my draw step because you have time in your upkeep, unlike oh, wow. uh, Phyrexian Arena, for instance. Um, and then we have, okay, so we, we've outlined all those combos with Lord Hexmage. All these cards work well with each other. Lord Skitter's Blessing puts two enchantments into play. So if you have a Satessan Champion, you get to draw two cards and you add an additional three power, two from the two triggers, and you um, power up your champion such that it gets another plus one, plus one. And if it dies, they take another damage. And then Lord Skitter's Blessing also works well with Sylvan Carry Added because Sylvan Carry Added is a very safe place to hold this curse token. So now your deck is very resistant to removal. Let's say you're playing red-black. They can't stomp it. They can't, uh, you know, dreadbore it. They can't fatal push it. We just get to draw two for the rest of the game. They almost have no interaction. Some red-black decks play a Liliana or two. Most don't. Red-black sacrifice plays none. So we, we just get to draw two forever. There's nothing that they can do. Um, and then Sylvan Carry Added, if you want to think of it this way, also works very well as a Tessan Champion. It lets us play it on turn three with an extra mana up. So we are most likely going to get a counter from it. So we can play a Spiteful Hexmage that same turn. The key card that holds us all together is Oath of Nyssa. It ups our enchantment count. It finds our big beaters. We only have seven cards, really, that can win the game. Force of Tessan Champion, three Shieldreds, or Shielded of the Apocalypse. It triggers the Tessan Champion, and it lets us play 23 land, uh, four Sylvan Carry Added. We are very un unlikely to ever have mana problems, and we're very unlikely to flood. And Oath of Nyssa, because we've got an enchantment hidden on a creature, Spikefield Hexmage, with Satessan Champion in play, is likely to find a Spiteful Hexmage. So, like, trigger the champion, draw. Oath of Nyssa looks at top three, finds Spiteful Hexmage, Spiteful Hexmage, enchant the champion, draw. Um, so, yeah. I mean, first of all, David, congrats on the 5-0. That's amazing. Second of all, like, what the fuck is this deck? <laughs> Even after hearing you describe it, I still... I still can't believe it. I can't believe my eyes. I can't believe my ears. It just doesn't compute for me. I have so many questions. So you're playing four Assassin Champion, and it sounds like that's a key card in the deck, right? Yes. Best card in the deck, probably. Every time we've tried to use this in the past, it's like a dedicated Enchantress-style deck. Lots and lots of enchantments. But you're really not playing that many. No. So I, so I have the list that I proposed in our, uh, you know, we kind of released like 15 deck lists. We're kind of excited to try at the start of the thing. The list below is what actually 5 0 So I had four Wolf Willow Havens, because I think that's actually the best enchantment in the format other than Oath. Um, Rhett, who's a friend of the podcast, kind of talked me out of them. So I added the 23rd land over one of them. 
I added two Ranger classes and I added another Glissa. He's like Dan. He's always worried about how we're going to win the game. We need to have more creatures that win the game. So fine. We entered and added some win conditions. They never won the game. It was always just the Satessan champion and Shieldreds. So, um, yeah, the, the so what I did is I actually went back and looked at the old standard and way, way back when, I don't even know the set, the set that had Courser in it, there were, they didn't call them Enchantress decks, but, you know, whatever you want to call it. When an, an enchantment enters the play, they drew, drew a card. So they played mm-hmm. the two green, green, two, two, that itself was an enchantment. Um, and it had a trigger whenever enchantment enters play, draw a card. And so I just counted how many enchantments they were playing. They were playing 15. Seriously? So it's like, okay, yep. If, the, if they were playing 15, I was like, if I can get up to 15, then I can live with this number. Especially because my oath, in theory, can find my Spiteful Hex Mage, which is sort of like a enchantment. But isn't the difference there that Eidolon of Blossoms in those Constellation decks always replaces itself? So the fail is not such a big fail if you just play it it's always a two for one whereas the tessin champion if you don't trigger it it seems like a total disaster yeah well so the difference is they can either kill a tessin champion without you playing an enchantment or if you if you play and you don't have the enchantment they still have to kill it they don't know what you have in your hand if you just play it on turn three um what are they going to do not kill it so then it's the same and and the problem is that idolina blossoms is just not a playable card it's a four mana card that just dies to stomp. It puts you so far behind. Drawing a card is not what you want out of your four drops. Your four drops actually need to be something that stabilizes the board. Mm-hmm. So again, because we have the carry added uh, Lord Skitter's Blessing combo, we have abilities to draw a bunch of cards without having to play a bunch of mediocre cards. Like one of the problems in all of our Satessan Champion decks is we were playing all this white garbage removal, right? And we had yes. very little disruptive elements. Correct. We had to play all of our creatures out, including our Eidolon of Blossoms, mm-hmm. um, into Wraths to make sure that we got enough tokens. And you just don't need to do that here because you get to play the best disruptive elements in the game. You get to play the Four Thought Seas for Push package. So we're just a mid-range deck that has uh, seven draw engines. And Satessan Champion is really good against decks that don't have a lot of removal. And Lord Scatter's Blessing is really good against decks that do have a lot of removal. All right, let's just say that I accept what you're saying for a second. <laughs> My next set of questions is, when do you actually plan to win the game? Because what I find so baffling here is the combination of like a one-mana 3-2, a three-drop that draws cards and slowly grows, and then these ramp cards, like Sylvan Karyatid, four copies. You've got four Wolfalo Havens in the list that you're proposing, although I see you didn't actually have those in the, the list of 5 owed, right? Someone, I think, could quite reasonably wonder, like, why do you need all this mana? It's not like you're ramping to anything, right? There's just three Shale Druids. Yeah, and so that was kind of Rudd's point. That's why we cut the Wolf Willow Havens. We had a slightly more stable mana base because we added in the 23rd land. I mean, Sylvan Carry added is still, again, just like a really good card. It's it's very good against the Red Blacklist, actually. Hmm. It's very good against Mono White. And it's really good with lord skitter's blessing it's not just that you get to draw for the rest of the game Mm. it also becomes one four so it did multiple things it blocked creatures with one toughness multiple times the adeline token actually gets gobbled up by the uh sylvan carry added with a plus one plus one counter on it thalia can no longer attack um the goblin with surge that gives all your creatures plus one plus oh and haste that also gets eaten by sylvan carry added 
blocking a creature, a, um, a burning tree emissary with a Tarkus command plus one plus one, it lives through that. So the like the buff is not trivial. It's 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 actually very relevant. It it, it lives through almost everything. Um, and you're just drawing two cards a turn, and drawing two cards a turn with Shieldred means that you are also gaining life to the point that aggro cannot beat you multiple times mono white had i thought sees them they had two um whatever white instant protection from the color of your choice i just had so much life they, their alpha strike could not kill me because i was just gaining four six eight life a turn um huh. they're just they're just totally helpless okay so the, the game plan for winning is to get a lord skitter's blessing and or a Satessan champion or multiple Skitter's Blessings and just draw a million cards. And then against aggro, unlike these other decks, you can turn three Shieldred. Like, if you turn three Shieldred and an aggro deck cannot kill that, it just wins by itself, right? It's just, we, we know that Shieldred is very powerful against removal heavy decks. So you almost get like two bites at the apple, like turn two, Sylvan Carry added, turn three Shieldred. Can they kill it or not? If they can, and you have Satessan champion plus enchantment or Lord Skitter's Blessing, now you're just drawing a bunch of cards and they and you're drawing to your next card that they must kill. A card that was incredibly amazing for me, which I think going forward I would always play two of, is Royal Treatment. Mm. Um, you guys kind of talked about it when it was spoiled and it was, it was literally like counter your spell, draw a card, add two extra power to the board or four extra power to the board, plus give my creature ward. The, the card was absolutely insane. You can change the power of your hex mage in combat like i just attack into an elf and they're like all right i guess i'll trade like just buff it becomes a <laughs> a four three ward one <laughs> um oh wow you can instant speed again if they got rid of your your token you can instant speed in your upkeep so that your lord skitter's blessings trigger you have these seven cards that they must kill it protects them um and again if it if it protects satessan champion which it does multiple times it did multiple times it actually replaces itself and adds two power to the board. So it's like a, it's like a one mana counter spell that, that draws a card and adds two power. It's just like a one mana. What's the snake <laughs> mystic snake. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, that does seem awesome. Yeah. Royal treatment, big overperformer there. And the price is right on that. I mean, if you ever use that to protect an enchantress, whether that's a Tessan champion, whether that's, What's the new one? The Elvish Archivist or something? Yeah, the O one. Um, yeah. So you that's a clean two for one right there. You counter their spell and you drew an extra card. So you're thinking two copies? Yeah, at least. So the Ranger class just isn't good enough. It's just more of like we're just trying to think of like enchantments that were also creatures again, because Rat was worried about like winning the game. Um so I'd certainly replace the second Ranger class with a with a royal treatment. Um and I wouldn't play any ranger classes in the sideboard. I mean, it's just, I don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> okay, so accepting all of that, let's just say I buy your argument. Last question is like, what, what the heck is the Spiteful Hexmage doing for the deck? Right, it's this one mana 3-2 that spits out an extra cursed roll, but like, what, what turn are you playing that? I imagine you have a lot of opening hands with a Hexmage in it. How do you evaluate that Hexmage? Yeah, so that's a great question. A lot of times it's not a good card in your opening hand. You're not planning on playing it until after you have a champion in play, for instance, or after you have a, um, a Sylvan Carry added in play. 
So yeah, this is not an aggro deck. This is definitely a mid-range deck that just has like all these engines. So instead of playing mm -hmm. Bankbuster that requires two mana to draw, with Satessin Champion in play, we are like ultimate stabilization. Because this is a one mana 3-2 that buffs our champion. And so like I have a screenshot here from my mono green match where you can I happen to draw all four of them. And I just have an insane amount of power in play. <laughs> On uh, on turn four here. I mean, how could they ever beat me? But doesn't it technically shrink the champion? At least the toughness? It shrinks its toughness. Okay, but it gives it boosts the power because of the plus one plus one counter. Yes. I see. Oh, man. <laughs> this is wild. <laughs> All right, well, congrats on the 5-0. The first 5-0 with Spiteful Hexmage. The first Satessin Champion 5-0 since the Trump administration. Long may he reign. <laughs> Some would say it's never truly ended. Um, yeah, exactly. I don't know what uh, I don't know what the future holds for this deck, but I'm excited to see other people pick it up, and I would love to see what kind of results they get. Yeah, I mean, one of the things this deck does that these other decks don't do is the because the enchantment in theory can trigger the enchantress. It just adds a ton of power. Like after you quote unquote stabilized. Um, you just begin to like take over because every 3-2 you play draws a card, uh, buffs your biggest creature, and the 3-2 is going to trade for something, right? It's going to, uh, you know, block against mono white. It's going to trade for a, you know, whatever. Blood Tithe Harvester. So it's like one mana, add four power to the board, draw a card. We've played three mana, three twos <laughs> that draw a card and make two energy. This is way better than that. <laughs> All right, so that is a black-green Satessin Enchantments in the 5-0s. What's next? All right, next up is a white-black list. So one of the things I wanted to do, again, we've got these extra rectangles. What are we going to do with them? I thought that Braids Arisen Nightmare and Devouring Sugar Maw were cards that would be able to eat the token off of the Spiteful Hex Mage. So again, we are kind of trying to turn our negative into a positive. Braids turns that enchantment into a draw a card plus do two damage to our opponent. Uh, the token from Spiteful Hex Mage allows us to not tap our Devouring Sugar Maw during our upkeep. So we get to attack with our sort of undercosted 6-6 six, six, uh, Menace Trample creature. I was worried about having enough cards to sacrifice, so I played four Hopeless Nightmare. Again, that's a one black mana enchantment. Cause your opponent to discard a card of their choice and they take two damage. When it goes to the graveyard, you get to scry two and you can sack it for three mana. But if you ever do that, you've lost the game. So don't worry about that. Um, also playing two Treacherous Blessing. Again, like just a really good value card if you have these sack engines. Um, three Tenacious Underdog. Again, I think Hopeless Nightmare is, is a very weak. I was worried it'd be a very weak card. Um, and so you need other ways to pressure their life total to make that two life matter. Same with Braids. You need that life total that life loss to matter. Uh, and then we're basically just playing removal and, and um, like two rights of oblivion, two vanishing reverse, four push, four thought seize, one shielded, two iron Craig. I, the list I actually played, I think I only had one iron Craig and one. Uh, I actually ended up playing one of the three, three rat that makes a rat every turn. Uh, again, more fodder for braids, more fodder for devouring um, sugar mom, more fodder for right of oblivion and a graveyard hate. Yeah, that, that is Lord Skitter himself. Lord Skitter, yeah. Um, really good card, by the way. It turned out to be quite good. 
Yeah, it's interesting. There was actually like a rats deck that managed to top 32 in modern, like a modern challenge with a bunch of Lord Skitters and pack rats and tangled colonies and ether vials and caramonics and stuff. So maybe there's something to it, but Lord Skitter is not a huge factor in this deck. Let's however, no. take a closer look at the, the two key cards. So braids of risen nightmare, it's one black, black legendary creature nightmare three, three at the beginning of your end step, you may sacrifice an artifact creature enchantment land or planeswalker. If you do, each opponent may sacrifice a permanent that shares a card type with it for each opponent who doesn't that player loses two life and you draw a card. So that's what Dave was talking about. If, if we're trying to like make braids happen, drawing the card is nice, but be really nice if that two life actually contributed meaningfully to our game plan. So that's Braids. Not exactly an ETB, but I think there's a decent chance Braids lives to the end step, right? Most of the time. Yeah, and you you need to have it do something that turn it comes into play. Otherwise, it's way under-costed. So, you know, we've got basically the rule of eight. We have Spiteful Hexmage and Hopeless Nightmare uh, as, as, in theory, things we don't mind sacrificing. Hopeless Nightmare has already done most of its work. We get a free Scry 2, and the Spiteful Hexmage gets pumped up, right? We, we kind of get our wild the coddle out of it and we get a card back and it's very unlikely the opponent will have an enchantment sacrifice so yeah it's almost guaranteed or even if they do like i did it against people with fables multiple times like they're not going to sack the fable <laughs> unless they have to i mean they were made to do so on multiple occasions devouring sugar maw another new one two black black six six creature horror it's six six menace trample at the beginning of your upkeep you may sacrifice an artifact, enchantment, or token. If you don't sacrifice, you have to tap the Sugar Maw. So just an undercosted, gigantic beater that you can feed things to. Um, you have to feed things to, otherwise you don't get to attack. It comes with the adventure Have for Dinner. One in a white instant, create a 1-1 one, one white human creature token and a food token. Yeah, so it happened multiple times. I would like push their one drop, hold up my mana, EOT the Sugar Maw Adventure, and then turn three braids, sack the food, mm -hmm. um, get my card out. And then in theory, you'd play your Devouring Sugar Maw next turn. You've got at least a 1-1 one, one in play. Um, the fact that it has to second your upkeep kind of sucks. So in my mind, I, I didn't realize that. I thought it was maybe start of combat. I thought I'd have time on the turn it attacks to play my Another Hopeless Nightmare to play a treacherous blessing. It is cool that the sugar maw adventure is at instant speed. So if they like kill the one, one and you've got another one in hand, which happened multiple times, you just flash that in, you get to sack, you get to attack. Um, it also makes a one, one, which is a cool place to put your spiteful hex mage token, um, which is kind of cool. All in all devouring sugar maw was actually like better than I thought it would be. It was actually like a very, very big clock. Uh, it was really hard for people to block it. It was I played blue, uh, red Phoenix twice, and it just dominated them. It took multiple spells for them to kill. Uh, they had to like leave two Phoenixes back multiple times. So they like, if I have no removal at all, they trade and take two damage. <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's impossible to block. It, it's just really hard for people to have two creatures. Like against red black sack, it just runs over their. Uh, cats they can't block with that it has four uh casting costs so they can't steal it easily um blocks chariot right just rumbles over chariot destroys it yeah the four one split on sugar maw and shale dread has given me hope as a budget player 
Yeah, and this is more like a speculative thing, right? Obviously, I'm not, I'm not arguing Sugar Maw is better than Shieldred. It's just like, for the purposes of this deck, it does something very synergistically driven. Let's kind of like push it to the limit and see what we can get out of it. So you took this through a league. Looks like you went 3-2. I did. I see that the Hopeless Nightmare was one that you singled out as um, not as powerful as, as we'd hoped. And I mean, your little comment that if you ever have to pay three to scry is just a disaster. Is that really that grim? I mean, that seems like just like an all upside, right? No, the problem is that Hopeless Nightmare is not a disruptive piece. Mm-hmm. So it's never going to take turn one mana elf. It's never going to take the card that's best against you. It's, it's never going to do any of that stuff. So other than being a source of direct damage when they're already low, and the only games I won is when I was super aggressive. So hopefully I didn't have Hopeless Nightmare in my opening hand. I had cards like Tenacious <laughs> Underdog and Devouring Sugar Maw. Um, otherwise, we're talking about like post-board games where, again, Hopeless Nightmare is not a good card because it doesn't disrupt their plan. So these decks in Pioneer are very plan-focused, right? Turn one Elf, turn two Kiora, whatever. Hopeless Nightmare cannot interact with the best draws of any deck. And that's a huge red flag, I realize. Every time I played it on turn one, they just discarded their worst card. Um, So it's way worse than even like Duress, right? Which can sometimes miss. But Duress actually can interact with their best cards. Uh, Hopeless Nightmare only interacts with their worst card. And the only time you ever kind of feel good about it is if you immediately get to sack it to Braids or something. So you get a card back. So you didn't disrupt their plan, but at least you're a card up in general. Sort of like a go blank that doesn't get to exile their graveyard. But it took four life away from them and lets you scry two. So. Right, exactly. So you have to be pressuring their life total a ton um, for, for that to matter. But yeah, my, my takeaway is unless you've got some kind of like engine that Hopeless Nightmare is powering, and this engine, if you want to call it an engine with Braids and Devouring Sugar Maw was not good enough. Uh, I didn't think to justify uh, playing Hopeless Nightmare, which felt way, way underpowered. Almost every other turn one play in the format is significantly better than Hopeless Nightmare. Turn one Mana Elf, turn one Aggressive Creature, um, you know, a 2-1 out of Mono White, uh, turn one Oven out of Red Black Sack. You're just way behind after turn one against almost every deck. It's okay against Blue Red, kind of, Although they just discarded Phoenix multiple times. Just like, okay, discard Phoenix. <laughs> That's coming back. You just did all my work for me. <laughs> well, speaking of turn one plays, this seems like the kind of deck list that is more likely to just run out of Hex Mage and curse itself. Not necessarily yes. on turn one, but you could. No, I did, I did that a lot. Turn one Hex Mage is a lot better than turn one Hopeless Nightmare. At least puts a modicum of a clock on them. I mean, you'll do a couple damage, possibly. You don't know. Um... If they're an aggressive deck or not, you don't mind to trade Spiteful Hexmage straight up for Fatal Push. Fatal Push is one of the best cards in Red Black's deck. It is the best card in Red Black's deck. You just trade it one for one. That's not the end of the world. So Hexmage dying here is, is not like some big tragedy. And the reason you want to have it on the board is because if you're looking to play Red of Oblivion turn two or to curve out onto Braids, you got to have your fodder already in play. Yes, exactly. I will say the timing on Braids kind of sucks. So you have Spiteful Exmage in play. I attack for one on turn two and whatever. Vanishing versus something. Turn three, they play uh, whatever. Anything with that's a 2-2 two, two or bigger. <laughs> I, I can't attack with Spiteful Exmage. I play Braids. End of turn, I sack it and do two to them and draw a card. It's just so slow. And now we've got a couple of three power creatures in play. Like, all right. <laughs> mm. 
that's not particularly impressive. So hmm. uh, not getting the the coming to playability uh, like we did in the last deck was a pretty big downgrade. And you could feel the like card quality was way worse. Like instead of playing Oath of Nyssa or playing Hopeless Nightmare, it's just it's like shocking how much worse the card is. Hmm. Well, if that's the case, uh, I see you have a speculative list here next that seems to be a mashup of the two decks we just described. Yeah. The one thing I'm excited about a little bit, and I don't, I don't, ex- uh, we won't be playing hopeless nightmare for sure, but I really like the idea of return triumphant. This is a card I had missed that Rhett mentioned to me. So this is one in a white sorcery. Return target creature in your graveyard with CMC three or less to play and put some role on it. I I don't even care what it is. (laughs) He had mentioned it with braids. So you you get back braids and then braids eats that enchantment at the end of turn. So it's functionally like a two mana three, three that draws a card and does two damage to your opponent in theory. They have no enchantment. Well, it's like, you know what else costs three that pays me off for having enchantments? And that is the test and champion. And the test and champion is so much better than braids. Maybe you don't even mess around with braids at all maybe you just play the force of test and champions um but yeah like so return triumphant is a two mana two four that draws a card and you at least have a mana left up right if you have three mana in play so if you've got another spiteful hex mage if you've got another uh spirited companion um so i think i'm going to tool around with this list a little bit more so so sorry i kind of like jumped into that but so we've got our, our exact same one-drop suite. Four Push, four Thoughtseize, four Spiteful Hex Mage, four Hopeless Nightmare. For Luminarch Aspirant, this is the most underplayed creature in Pioneer by far. Mono White doesn't play it anymore for some reason. Putting a bunch of plus one, plus one counters on Spiteful Hex Mage means even if you don't eat the enchantment, it just becomes something they have to kill. Uh, it's a cool card to return Triumphant back because you can put all the plus one, plus one counters on other stuff. But when Luminarch Aspirant attacks, the roll it gets gives it a plus one, plus one. Uh, Spirited Companion is a cool card with Satessan Champion. With Satessan Champion in play, if you return Triumphant Spirited Companion back, you get two triggers, kind of just like we were describing in the other list. Um, the problem is, like, are your cards going to be in the graveyard repeatedly? Do you need to play, like, Liliana as, like, sort of, like, a generically powerful card that can move cards to the right zones for you? Uh, unsure. Or do, or you need to play, like... The one mana one one guy that mills three when it comes into play, you know, or the or the the what is the uh, the two one that connives when it enters play? Oh, Rafine's informant that uh, Grease Fang plays. Yeah, like do you do you need to play like consciously play cards that put stuff in your graveyard so you can play like maybe the full boat of Return Triumphants instead of just hoping you're like oh I'm playing a powerful creature my opponent will have to kill it. So there's something intriguing here. Yeah, I noticed that you're only playing two return triumphants. That to me suggests that we need to just go harder on this interaction. Like if it's worth doing, yeah. if, it's, if it's worth going into a third color, we need to get all four return triumphants in there. Otherwise, it's just yes. not worth the mana base cost. And I would love to get it down to two colors if possible. Yeah. The problem is, well, if it's going to be Spiteful Hex Mage Week, uh, then we're stuck on black, <laughs> white. And the best card for... Spiteful X Mage is a Tessin champion by far. So, yeah, maybe you like play very little green and you just like loot away here's a Tessin champion and you just try to return Triumphant it back into play. I, I, I don't know. There, yeah, this, this list is drawn up as incorrect. Again, we'll for sure cut the Hopeless Nightmares. We'll, we'll get it figured out here. But there, there's something, there's something here that's, that's interesting to me. 
I mean, could you cut the hopeless nightmares, put in the oaths, and then reduce your white footprint so that the return triumphant is just a splash? Or do you feel like the spirit of companions? Yeah, and then maybe like cut the braids because you don't need those either. Or like down to one braids. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. We'll have, to, we'll have to monkey around with it. I, I don't want to mm. bore people with my thought processes. <laughs> All right. On to new and exciting color combinations. Moving into red and black. Yeah, so one of the things we talked about is that Spiteful Hex Mage puts two permanents into play. Well, one of the cards we were very excited, or I was at least very excited to brew with, was Godric, the Cloaked Reveler. So that's a one red, red, three, three haste. But if you have two permanents enter play, it becomes a four, four dragon that has red, colon, all dragons get plus one, plus oh until end of turn. Well, we're not playing any of the dragons. It'll only be pumping itself. But we actually get to play a lot of cards without having to like bend our deck at all. We get to play a lot of cards that make two permanents. So Spiteful Hex Mage, mm-hmm. Blood Tithe Harvester. That's just, you know, Law 11 showed us. This is one of the best cards in the format. Charming Scoundrel. That's a card we were excited about. It also, Charming Scoundrel works really well with Spiteful Hex Mage uh, because it can replace the, um, the Cursed Roll with the uh, roll that Charming Scoundrel gives it. Kumano faces Kazakhan. If you play at turn one, on turn three, we'll flip Godric by itself. The turn it comes into play. Kari Zev, Skyship Raider, every time it attacks, makes a, um, an extra permanent enter play. We are playing one Obnixilis. That puts two permanents into play as long as you have a different creature to sacrifice. Uh, or it can just, the turn it comes into play, at least it can come into play and make a 1-1. One, one, so that triggers Godric. And then Monstrous Rage, you know, we were excited about this card in red-white heroic. It was, I played against red-white heroic. It was scary as hell. That actually just makes an extra permanent um, and replaces the role on Spiteful Hexmage if we want it to. Uh, so that card seems really good. So, And then we're just playing a Burn Sweet, Lightning Strike, Play With Fire. Soaking Zon makes two permanents if we want that. When Den of Bugbear attacks, it makes an extra permanent. So I think we just have lots of ways to turn on Godric. And, and we're just a generic uh, aggro deck, basically. Yeah, in terms of disruption, if you're thinking, well, it's a red-black deck, it's going to have Thought Season Push. And you're saying, no, it's not that. You're, you're working off of just like a straight, almost like a mono-red template. You just happen to find more synergies by using black creatures. But your interactive suite is primarily cards that go face. Yeah, so think of it as like Islands Go Same, however you say his name, I, I apologize. He plays like a red-green list that's basically like a mono-red aggro that just has a few green cards in it. That's, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're basically playing like a mono red aggro, but the man is great these days because we have Black Lee Cliffs and the Pathway and the Blood Crypt and the Sulphur Springs. Um, we just play the full four Den of the Bugbears. We don't need that much black. We have no double black card in the list. And yeah, then once they're close to dead, we just Lightning Strike, play with fire, just get them out of there. Or kill Mana Elf. I mean, that's the thing you have to do sometimes. So if you're comparing these lists head to head, you'll notice that they, they both have four Kumano faces Kakazan, but we've replaced the soul scar mage and the monastery swift spear with our synergy creatures, namely spiteful hex mage and blood soaked champion. That means we have to be willing to run the hex mage out on turn one. Otherwise it's like not worth building yeah. a curve this yep. way. So yeah, we have six ways to un- unleash it. Yeah. My apologies. So do you think it's like actually a strong curve, like Hex Mage on turn one, Charming Scoundrel turn two, put the Wicked Roll on the Hex Mage, now you have a, a four, three, and a one, one haste? Is that good enough? Yeah. You attack for five on turn two? 
Well, I suppose, but if they kill your your one drop, you have nothing left. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it all the white removal is sorcery speed, so they have to do it before we play Charming Scoundrel. That lets us do something else with our Charming Scoundrel if we want. Um, but again, we're just losing a one drop to one drop removal, right? Mm-hmm. That that's what you're describing. That's that's just not the end of the world to me. Okay. Like you're describing a fatal push killing a spiteful hex mage. It's like, yep, that resolves. <laughs> well, it also fatal push kills all one drops everywhere. <laughs> but I threw away my scoundrels, so it's like all I have left is a one one. If I, if well, I... you can read them. I mean, they you know play a black untapped and don't cast thoughtsies. They'd never do that unless they have a push. You just can I attack you for one with my spiteful hex mage? You respond. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, I play blood. I play blood tithe harvester. <laughs> your turn <laughs> very intrigued to see if spiteful hex mage plus monstrous rage turns out to be like a huge blowout uh, your attack with a 1-1 cursed hex mage they put anything in front of it and monstrous rage turns into what a 6-3 trample is that correct should be 7 no 6 you're right you're right I'm sorry so you lose the curse roll you gain a monstrous roll and then after that turn if it survives it's now a 4-3 trample which is yes. nuts. Yeah. This is a very clever construction. I'm, I'm hoping that Godric is worth it because Godric would be so sweet. Yeah. Also worth noting, like you can let Godric attack, put a blood champion into play, uh, before blockers and then monstrous rage or whatever. Like you can, you can construct ways where Godric just takes to the sky and does your last points of damage. Oh, I like that. Okay. Yeah, that's why the Bloodsoak Champion is here is just A, a random body. You can put a Spiteful Hexmage token on it, I guess, if you want. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a card that constantly comes back. So even like the late game, if you have two of them in the graveyard, just like attack with Godric, put them both into play. <laughs> Godric goes to the air. All right, so that is essentially a red aggro deck with a black splash for the Hexmage, yes. for Bloodsoak, for Blood Tithe, for Bloodsoaked. Finally, we compare Spiteful Hexmage with white. Yeah, so I'm calling this Black White Wild Nacatles because we are playing Toolcraft Exemplar, which is a one mana, one one, but it functionally in this deck will attack as a, a three two every time. And Spiteful Hexmage as a one mana, one one, but we have so many cards that it actually pumps up or leaves exactly the same power. So four Toolcraft Exemplar, four Spiteful Hexmage, four Ginger Brute, four Stone Coil Serpent three ornithopter so those are seven cards right there that actually get pumped by this spiteful hex mage the toolcraft exemplar ginger brood are one power naturally two screlv defector might also one power four portable hole that is our removal it also triggers toolcraft exemplar four patchwork automaton again a base one one four ingenious smith again a base one one four machiko's reign of truth well that actually looks at enchantments and artifacts in play so spiteful hex mage putting an enchantment on some random card actually a bonus here same with the one all the glitters and then two steel seraphs as a card that again just gives some in theory you know a way to like push the last points of damage from our patchwork automatons and genius smiths whatever we machiko's reign of truth 18 lands two uh spring leaf drums one dark steel citadel just to get our artifact count where we need it to be so extremely low to the ground only 18 land, although if you want to count the Darksteel Citadel as a quarter of a land with the Ingenious Smith, that's okay. 
I'm I'm still feeling like despite having such a low land count, you're gonna run out of gas super fast in this deck. There's not a lot of things to spend mana on. There's not much card card draw or card flow. There's no well, Smith is the only card that even gestures at what you're describing. Do you feel like these little ginger brutes and ornithopters and stone cold serpents are gonna deal twenty damage? I don't know. I think Michiko's Reign of Truth and all the glitters are powerful cards, and I do like that Ginger Brute combines with them to be unblockable. Um, and so I guess I'm looking for my one drops to do just enough. Now, it is the case that people are playing specifically the card um, Meat Hook Massacre a lot more now because it's very good against uh, Red Black Sack, and Red Black Midrange lists are playing the. Um, Saga, one, a black and a red, destroy all cards that cost one or less. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Hidetsugo consumes all. Yeah. So so we're very poorly positioned there, right? We, we've got very few two drops. Um, we don't typically play decks like this. They're like so all in. This is sort of like the scissors deck, but instead of the scissors having this very like polarized, can they destroy it or not? We, we're just playing like a lot of very consistent sources of damage, right? Where we're going to have... On turn two or three, we're going to have a bunch of three power creatures already. And we're just going to see if that's good enough. Um, I suspect, to your point though, Dan, it probably won't be. But I, I'm not really sure. I, I just, we, we, we just haven't played enough decks like this that are sort of like all in on, on all in style aggro decks. So my first thought when I saw this list was that I wanted to put in something bigger, right? Something that just like hits like a truck. And the new card in that category is Regal Bunnicorn, right? One in a white star star where star is the number of rectangles you control. Each non-land permanent contributes to Regal Bunnicorn's power and toughness. So it's almost like a Machiko's Reign of Truth, depending on how you have built the deck. If I were going to put that in and just like cut some of these random artifact creatures, maybe I also want to play Thraben Inspector. So I'm essentially looking at cutting eight artifacts for eight non-artifacts. Do you think that would still be functional? I guess the three bin makes a token, but it doesn't count for Genius Smith. Um, yeah, I mean, it might be. I think at that point you'd maybe cut in Genius Smith. I, I think you don't want that many two drops. Okay. Um, the Bunnicorn does not work with Spiteful Hex Mage. So worth noting. It's not a zero zero that's modified by the number of permanents in play. It is equal to the number of permanents in play. Uh, true. No, I would not want to curse the Bunnicorn. That would be shameful. I just meant to count the game objects, right? It it contributes two rectangles that the Bunnicorn sees. Yeah, I mean, I think Spiteful X Mage, um, Thraben Inspector, and Bunnicorn is maybe like a different shell that wouldn't really be like all in on Machiko's Reign of Truth and would be more of like a Bunnicorn list with some disruption. So I guess those are almost like, like the, the thing with Thraven Inspector is you just don't have time in these decks to crack the clue. If you're playing a 19 land deck, you should not be playing Thraven Inspector. You correctly pointed out, you were wrong that blood was better than clues, but you did say it's hard, it's hard to find the time to crack the clues. That is true. And it's very true in a deck with uh, 18 lands. Um, so I think the Bunnicorn is almost more of like a Tarmogoyf kind of card. And Tarmogoyf, we don't really see in like all in aggro lists with 18 lands a lot of times we see it more in decks with like Thoughtseize into whatever or thraven inspector into that into you know a three drop that makes three tokens or something 
I agree with all of that, but I think it's abundantly clear that blood is better than clues by now, and the tournament results back that up. (laughs) Well, you know, again, there's no such thing as the mechanic being good or bad. It's just the way they price the card. Mm. I would rather play Thraben Inspector than the 1-1 red guy that does does a damage and makes a blood. And Thraven Inspector was way better in its standard than than the uh, the gentleman we just described. So the deck that is playing Bunnicorn is Red White Convoke or Boros Convoke, which is playing Bodaren Epicure. What was interesting to me about seeing those lists is that they're also playing a card that we just like totally skipped during our review. It's called Imodane's Recruiter. Have you seen this card? I have. Yes. It's two in a red human knight. For a 2-2 creature, when Imidane's Recruiter enters the battlefield, creatures you control get plus 1 plus 0 and gain haste until end of turn. So it's a 3-2 haste by itself. It buffs everything else. It's like a super bushwhacker that doesn't have to be surged. It also comes with an adventure that you're probably never going to use, but for 5 mana, it makes 2 knights. So this one kind of just snuck through. I actually don't even remember seeing this during previous season. Yeah, again, I... I wasn't recording with you guys, but I think I added a note in one of our things that it's basically just like another mm-hmm. because we don't have the replicative effect in pioneer um, that modern does, you know, modern has eight whack as they call it. This yeah. is sort of like the extra whacker. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, it, it doesn't require uh, you to kind of bend your deck with worse, not worse cards, but you know, cards that are not as powerful to, to turn on. Uh, you know, I was just describing sort of the burning tree emissary shell, et cetera. That deck has incredibly powerful openings where Imodan's recruiter wouldn't help. But with this other, uh, the deck you're talking about, this is kind of a good follow-up to the, the, the better openings it can have. Mm. Cause you can be out of cards, right? You, you pumped all your cards with your, your four, four, right? You turn your Thraben inspector and your one, one goblin tokens into two twos. And now this attacks, um, as a two, as a three two and, and you know everything has three power and that's that's actually enough to kill right it's you know five three threes and a four four or whatever yeah interesting so the other change I was considering when I look at your one drop slot I see you have toolcraft and spiteful hex mage both of which are three power one drops if you squint that to me says it's time for heart of Kirins, it's time for reckoner bankbusters do you want any vehicles here. Again, I don't think, I mean, this list might be bad, so that that may be the case. It's interesting to think about a vehicle list, though, like maybe just a ton of vehicles, like maybe go all in on the um, Heart of Kirin shell, like a black-white Heart heart of Kirin shell. Because (laughs) Braids would actually work well with the Spiteful Hex Mage, and it crews Heart of Kirin, and it can sacrifice Heart of Kirin if you want it to at the end of turn. Not sure I want to sack the heart of Kieran, but yes. Yeah, I see you. That could be nice. <laughs> Unless you just mean for like two extra damage. Yeah, I mean, just when the, when the moment is right. Interesting. Or, or, a, or a Bankbuster shell, if, if you want to think of it that way. The thing is, like, Bankbuster takes mana to, to activate, so it's not good in decks like this that are only 18 land. Bankbuster is a 24 land deck card. Oh, yeah, I just want to, like, hit hard. I guess Heart of Kieran is better for that. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, lots to think about here. Um, 
I mean, this is a list, low land count, spiteful hex mages are only black card, so we really need it to perform. But I love the synergies, I love how it's contributing to Machiko's reign, and to all the glitters, and buffing the Stormcolor Serpents, and buffing the Ornithopters. There's almost no drawback to putting the hex mage wicked token on anything, right? There's only one creature that gets shrunk by it. Yeah, just the two Steel Seraphs. Uh, okay, so maybe this is a good time to pivot to our card of last week. Well, actually, our card of the lost episode. The Agatha's Soul Cauldron. This is the it card of every format. It's like 100 ticks online. We had a sweet Hex Mage brew that we talked about. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll get that out. But yeah, putting the Spiteful Hex Mage on the Tree of Perdition was going to be so sweet. But that's not the list that you played. So tell us about the list that you tried, David. Yeah, so I played a Saltai list with Tyvar, Jubilant Brawler, uh, Emery Lurker of the Lock, Rona, Herald of Invasion, Agatha's Soul Cauldron. And then the thought was that we would, um, we have the ability to, you know, cast, we have four Mox Amber. We can cast Mox Amber over and over again uh, to make infinite mana. But one of the cool things we can do is we can recast Stone Coil Serpent with our Emery Lurker of the Lock every turn. And if we have a Sage of Hours in the graveyard and we have five mana, we get to take infinite turns. Because Sage of Hours requires you to remove all plus one plus one counters on it. And for each N equals five plus one plus one counters, you get to take an extra turn. I can't believe this actually works. <laughs> Sage of Hours is such a casual card. Sage of Hours is like definitely a card I always am sending Dan weird yep. proposals on, like the confirmed, one white confirmed. flashback sorcery that gives a plus one plus one counter, and then with target Sage, that's two. Then you flash it back, that's four. Like I was kind of interested about in that. <laughs> all for just an extra turn. But all right, so in in this list, you're saying you can actually take every turn, all the turns, yes. And I did it multiple times in the league that I played, actually, which is pretty sweet. So you're saying to, to make that happen, you need an Emery, a Stone Crow Serpent, and a Sage of Hours that has absorbed the ability from. No, no, no. You need an Agatha Soul Cauldron with a Saga, uh, the Sage of Hours underneath it. And then you need either an Emery in play or an Emery underneath your Soul Cauldron and any other creature in play. And then you tap whatever creature that has either Emery or Emery's ability. You target the stone close up in your graveyard. You pay five mana. As soon as it resolves, there's no chance for them to respond. You just sack it to its own ability. Sage of Hours, remove all counters. And it gives you a turn. All right. So the Sage of Hours, because that's an activated ability, it's okay yes. if that's under the cauldron. Yep. Okay. So even if Sage has died, Emery has died, doesn't matter. Cauldron in play, any eligible creature can pull this off. Yep, yep. And then you also have the thing that the modern decks do, where if Rona has Emery's ability, you can cast infinite Mox Ambers and make infinite mana. We don't have that much to do with that. We can make an infinitely large Stone Cold Serpent. Uh, we can activate Kin and Bonner Prodigy a lot. I made an infinitely large Sir Ginger. Uh, and it scried <laughs> every time we went through that, which actually almost caused me to time out, but still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what happened in your league? Yeah, so I went 3-2, but I have to say the deck felt pretty bad. So I beat 
Red White Heroic 2-0. I don't know how I won either game. I felt like my draws were bad and their draws were bad. And I just eventually like beat down with a giant ledger shredder. I played like a black white removal dot deck with like colorless cards from someone in our Discord. Um they had so they had a Urian size deck and an 80 card deck, but they did not reveal Urian. I got color hose in a couple games that I lost them, I and their deck was full of removal, so that was a pretty good matchup for them. And I even had my Sage of Hours combo set up, and I was like, oh, this guy's not gonna like like give up. He's gonna make me do it. And then I realized that what had happened is I was forced to chump the last turn, and I did not have five mana. Uh, they realized it before I did, of course. <laughs> uh, my Mox Amber did not tap for mana. So I had four lands on a Mox Amber, and I had drawn the perfect card to set up my combo, and I, instead I could not take all the turns. Yeah, shout-outs to Tombow Catcher for the win there, uh, who has yeah. promised to put the Yorian back into the deck. Um, That's good. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, obviously tough matchup and one land away. If I had, I'm sure there was a way I could have played better. It was, it was hard to figure out what, what, what his deck was doing. So uh, he got he got the Brewers advantage over me there. <laughs> well, so in that matchup, I, I believe like Unlicensed Hearse was in play. Can your deck function with Hearse on the other side of the battlefield? Um, I mean, it can. You just wait till they target with your Soul Cauldron or target a card at the end of turn and whatever. The Hearse did not have an outcome on, on either either game. I was color hosed in the two games that I lost and would have easily won the game that I comboed out if I didn't have to chump block everything the turn before. And I think I had no green and only black and blue in play in game three. Hmm. Um, I can't remember. I think I also drew all four cauldrons. <laughs> I think I had all four cauldrons and black and blue and black and blue uh, lands in play and a couple of green cards or something. But yeah, super cool list from them. Um, I'm wondering if they're having a lot of success with it. So it has. Um, they're playing Thought Not Seer with the um, the three two guy that you know exiles a card to give minus three minus three, and then it had the the white Eldrazi that blinks, and then it had the one and a colorless instant that like destroys a creature with one or exiles a creature with one toughness counter target sorcery, um, and then I think it was just like black white. I didn't I basically didn't see any other way to win other than just a bunch of removal, um, just like beat down with Thought Knots and stuff. So it was it was a cool list, uh, and Yorian is awesome in those lists. Like blinking thought not is really cool. So I see you've got a proposed update here, and one of the things I noticed about the list that you played is that it's actually quite light on what turn one plays. It's just the four fatal push, um, and the scorn blade berserker. And I, and I was curious if you felt like your curve was off. Right, you have just like a huge stack of two drops. The updated list you're proposing is a little more balanced. Yeah, mostly because uh, Emery was terrible, so I'm just like trying to cut those down. All the combo pieces are only like good when you need them. So my proposal is to play four Fauna Shaman and just less of these random cards that suck, like Emery. Um, a one of Deathrite Shaman becomes a little bit more interesting. A one of Scornblade Berserker as a tutor target. A one of Sage of Hours, because if you're not doing the combo thing, it doesn't do anything. I mean, mostly I was just winning these games by like pumping up Ledger Shredder and Tyvar is just like an insane card. No other card in, and Rona was uh, pretty good. Um, I beat a red-green bolts combo. I actually did get to do the combo thing. Uh, I beat red-black sack, but I'm not sure. I was up in both games, but they like gave up. They certainly weren't dead on board in either one. And then mono-white humans just freaking curb stomp me. Um, so, I don't know. The, the deck... 
the only cards that felt really good were Ledger Shredder, Rona, Tyvar. Soul Cauldron's fine. Because we don't get to play the um, the one that gets to discard, the, uh, you, you use plus one, plus one counters to do a damage. You just don't like get clean advantage off of your Soul Cauldron a lot. Hmm. Like getting to loot more with Rona is cool. You are looting towards the combo, but still, if you don't actually find the combo, then like looting does okay. I know you love it, but you don't actually get ahead. <laughs> you know, you just your hand gets slightly better, <laughs> your graveyard gets slightly bigger. So, you know, I, I think there's there's something to be said for having, you know, like we were describing in the other uh, deck, maybe where you have the spiteful hex mage, pernicious or a tree of perdition combo, like you at least can find two cards and, and you can play a little bit more built-in removal, like being able to play Blood Tithe Harvester with Tyvar is really awesome. It's like a threat. If they kill it, you bring it back. But against decks where you're not the beatdown, then you just use, it's a double removal spell with Tyvar uh, on turn three. So there's something here, like it felt powerful, the, the Soul Cauldron stuff, but the I I don't know what all the numbers are and I don't know what all the right cards are. Hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to see if Fauna Shaman can do the job. That will make you more consistent and also, yeah, if there's any random one of creatures that I want to make a case for, you can just put a, one copy in and see if it ever comes up. Yeah, and in theory, right, Fauna Shaman dies. We know that. We we just we oh, yes. had to give it up in modern. Uh, you know, whatever. Long before MH one came out, we had to abandon Fauna Shaman. But with Soul Cauldron, we, we can make anything a Fauna Shaman. And Tyvar actually makes us very resistant to removal, right? They have to kill it before we untap. So it's often going to be a creature in our graveyard for Tyvar. If you can play Tyvar minus it and get a creature in play, it's just so nice. Yeah, Fauna Shaman actually begins the game in your graveyard, which is actually kind of nice for yeah. the Soul Cauldron and the Tyvar. Yes, exactly. Okay, so some interesting re- preliminary results with that shell. There's one other list that I want to talk about here, and it's going back to the Tree of Perdition combo, which in the last episode, uh, David had a very nice brew where he's trying to do the Soul Cauldron Tree combo, but then you figured out that you can do Spiteful Hexmage as a secondary way to combo that actually doesn't require the graveyard. So what you figured out was that, what if I just cast Tree on turn four, play a Hexmage turn five, turn the tree into a 1-1, and win the game that way? Now. A lot of people are interested in Tree because it's such a sweet interaction with Soul Cauldron. It hasn't 5-0'd yet. I feel like people are knocking on the door and I got to give a shout out here to MMP, also from our Discord, who posted their version of this list and they said they went 4-1 in their initial league. If we take a look at what MMP was doing, um, they were not doing the Spiteful Hexmage thing, but they were going much harder on like actually trying to find this tree of perdition, I guess the soul cauldron combo red, black are the colors. So it's four tree, four soul cauldron, four thoughts used for push four blood tithe harvester four fable of the mirror breakers. So not a huge surprise in that component. But what I think is very interesting is four copies of reckless handling. Do you know this card, David? I know it. Cause I saw it in the discord. I had to look it up. I, I did not like, this was not on my radar at all. So it's from Aftermath. It's one in a red sorcery. Search your library for an artifact card. Reveal it, put it into your hand, shuffle, then discard a card at random. So that's gamble, essentially. A two-mana gamble that only gets artifacts. Now, it also says that if an artifact card was discarded this way, Reckless Handling deals two damage to each opponent. 
And that's so interesting because, you know, when I first saw this, people thought, oh, I need tutors kind of interesting. It's like a gamble. But I was thinking gambles, I mean, tutors are like way overrated to begin with. An unreliable tutor that costs you the Olingus artifacts, I'm just like not that interested. But what's so cute about it here is that you can actually use the discard to your advantage, right? Like you, you need the tree to be in the graveyard. So if you empty out your hand and you have the soul cauldron, you can just reckless handling as your last card, get the tree and it goes straight to your graveyard. No, you can only search your library for an artifact card. Correction. You cannot do what I just said. However, <laughs> you can. All right. That's not so sweet. I, I go back to my original analysis. The card sucks. You can tutor for soul cauldron. Put it that way. Well, no, but it's even better than that, though, because it's also a source of two damage. Right, right. That's the consolation prize. Or it can be. No, but the two damage is lethal when you do your tree thing. The the tree, you have a one toughness creature. Yeah, it doesn't search up the tree. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I'm just bummed that it doesn't, doesn't find the tree. No, it does not find the tree. So, yeah, this deck is v- not all in, but because it's still very interactive, right? This this player is playing four push and four thoughtsies. So they're still keeping the core of an interactive deck, including two fiery temper, which is a cool card that might get discarded to reckless handling can easily discard your fable or your scrapwork mutt. And the, um, I find it hard to believe that they can win though, if they aren't doing the combo, right? That's going to be pretty rare. You're going to have to basically have a, a flipped fable, not interacted with by your opponent. Yeah, I think you have to combo, but there's there's so many ways to loot for it. There's Epicures, there's Blood Tides, there's Fables, two Scrapwork Mutts, and then the one last really cute piece of tech here is the single Ginger Brute, which the situation you would you would want to tutor for this is you have the combo ready to go, you just don't have a creature in play, right? So you have Soul Cauldron in play with a tree under it. I just need something that's one toughness, that is haste, that is an artifact. So you reckless handling, get the ginger brute. Uh, hopefully you don't discard it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, cast it, put the soul cauldron counter on it. And now you're ready to do the tree combo right there. Um, or you give it unblockable and attack. Well, you can do that next turn because it'll be two, two. So Correct. it can be both a source of the tree, put the end of their turn. Hey, what's your life total? At? All right, two, <laughs> and then go get them. Yeah, I like the look of this last a lot. Three Mutavault as well, so they're really loading up on, or maybe four, uh, I'm not sure if it's cut off here, but um, so they're loading up on multiple ways. Once you get them to two, mm-hmm. right, it's it's really hard for them to attack. I mean, it's like an all-out assault on their uh, life total, so. Yeah, if you've gotten them to two, if you've already done the tree thing, then reckless handling for Ginger Brute is more or less guaranteed, because either you discard it for two damage, or you yep. cast it Presumably there's one other thing in play in the graveyard for the soul cauldron to make the ginger brood a two, two. Yes. And then and they probably don't have a haste creature. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I like about this is how many of the good cards it's playing, right? So mm-hmm. you've got some speculative cards. We are playing four push, four thoughtsies, four soul cauldron, four fable, four blood tithe harvester. That's just the basis of red, black mid range, right? Like red, black sack, red, black mid range. This is a, these are staple cards. So you're playing, you know, a few knuckleheads, as we like to to say it. But if you're going to try to do the Tree of Perdition thing, um, you kind of have to play some cards, right, that are a little outside the norm. And this card, I think this deck is playing a lot less, quote-unquote, bad cards than the deck that I proposed. 
So maybe that's the way to go. Yeah, it's a super interesting list. I feel like not drawing tree is, is the biggest thing of holding this deck back. It's got so many ways to get tree into the graveyard. If you ever have a tree stuck in hand, you just reckless handling for the scrapwork mutt, and that gets the tree in the graveyard. But there's only four trees, and you just have to draw one naturally or loot for it. And I don't know if there's a way around that. Yeah, and then again, this is a deck where it's really tough to win with Hurson play. Because mm-hmm. um, it doesn't matter if you go for it on your end of turn, like they only care about exiling tree. Uh, any of these other cards underneath the uh, Soul Cauldron is not really <laughs> particularly threatening to your opponent. So I guess my question, David, is given that Spiteful Hexmage is our card of the week, do you think that this list from MMP could be improved with the Hexmage tech? I think if you're going to play Hexmage, you should play it with Tyvar as, again, another way to find it uh, once you have your tree in play. And giving tree haste is also very relevant if you're going to make it a 1-1 because uh, you need to do it right then. So I, I, I think this list would not be improved by adding the... Eh, maybe a 1 or 2 of is not going to end, end the world. But um, mm. to be all in on 4, I, I don't know that that would improve this list. Right, the hex mage is like not really on the artifact theme, and it's only good if you already have a tree, which I think MMP's list is doing just fine in that regard. Yeah, exactly. Like if you find the tree here and you're not playing against mono green, you're in pretty good shape, I think. Again, the, just the base plan of like Agatha Soul Cauldron is super weak to mono green. It just sucks, and um, it's really really weak to like Thalia turn two, right? It, so. <laughs> that's just life <laughs> there's just very commonly played strategies that just without trying interact really well with what you're trying to do all right david so that's a little bit of a flashback to agatha's soul cauldron week uh that's all i've got um anything else you want to cover before we sign off no i hope everyone out there is casting their uh, spiteful hex mages um it may be that it only is good with enchantress-like effects. We're hoping to find. Uh, we're hoping to find another way. <laughs> <laughs> I will take. We'll take the a five zero as the Tessin champion, though. Come on. <laughs> so Tessin champion is on the board, and so is Spiteful Hex Mage. Yes. Power duo. First of many? Question mark. Question mark. Question mark. <laughs> exactly. All right, so we will be back uh, hopefully next week with some spiteful hex mage results. Who knows? By then, maybe the lost episode will be out, or maybe it will just be David ranting at no one for an hour. <laughs> Talking to some, just another Thursday night, you know what I mean? Yeah, let us know, um, and we'll see you next time. All right, take care, brother. Bye bye. Deck lists for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in next time for our testing results, plus fresh brews in Modern and Pioneer. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye.